Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Would you take your Bible, please, and join me in Matthew 5. And I'm sure that by now, after these many, many weeks that we have been in Matthew 5, it's becoming one of your favorite chapters of the Bible. Hopefully it's becoming one of those chapters in your Bible that is beginning to show a little wear on the edges. I know that we've been there a while, and we're going to look today at Matthew chapter 5, again at verses 17 through 20. We're going to concentrate today on verses 19 and 20. Last week, we concentrated on 17 and 18 from this passage. This week, we'll look at verses 19 and 20. But I'll never forget my first opportunity, my first experience. It was an experience that was my first, and my wife and I got to share it together when we both together went on our first international mission trip. Now, the country that we chose to go, or that was chosen for us to go for a first time, was a closed country to the gospel. It was one where we had to go and be coached on what to say, how to act, especially when you first enter the country, we were coached on what it is that we tell the customs agent as to the reason why we are entering the country. And so needless to say, the whole time we were over there, we were on guard uh, the whole time that we were over there, being diligent about the way that we acted. And needless to say, for a first mission trip experience, it was one that I know that my wife and I will never forget. But the most tense moment came when we got off of our multiple-hour flight across the Atlantic from Atlanta. We got off the plane, and the most tense moment wasn't anything like worrying about our bags or anything like that. The most tense moment came when we headed for customs to enter the country. And here we face this individual sitting behind a glass enclosure with many armed guards around them, in some cases canines around them, so it's a very intimidating thing. And this agent, where we come up in line, finally it's our turn, and we present them our passports, and then they ask us questions to try to figure out whether or not they're going to let us into the country or whether or not they're going to send us back on the same plane or a different plane that we came in, heading back for the same place. Now here we had traveled all this way, these many hours. Here we had gone through these many months of raising all of the money, and now all of our plans came to this one moment where an agent would either stamp our passports and grant us a visa or deny us entry and escort us back to a plane heading back home. And I'm thankful to say that on that day, thankfully, everyone on our team was granted access into the country. But I want you to think about something with me for just a minute. Think about the many layers that are behind that one moment where here we are waiting for someone to stamp our passport and grant us access into the country. It's not as simple as that. Any of you have ever traveled, you know, you know anything about international policy? It's not as just simple as walking up to a country and saying, hey, I'd like to get in. I had to get the passport. I had to give them everything except my blood type to get the passport. I had to pay the money for the passport. The United States had a some kind of agreement with this country that they would allow travelers back and forth. So there was all kind of many levels. The whole process that of the questioning even from the customs agent is designed and everything is thought through. I couldn't just do what I wanted to do. I had to do what everyone required of me to do if I were to get into the country. 
So there's quite a bit of uh, behind that moment awaiting a simple stamp. And I want to take that moment and just capitalize on that just to think about something. In our individualistic society, if we're not careful, we can live in America which really prides itself on personal freedom and personal autonomy. In our individualistic society, if we are not careful, we can be swept into a mode of thinking that suggests that there is such a thing as true individualism. We can be swept into a mode of thinking to think that whatever is true for you is the only truth that matters. We can be swept into a mode of thinking that thinks in something called absolute autonomy. But we need to remember, as John Donne famously said, no man is an island entirely of himself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of a main. If a clod be washed away by sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were as well as any manner of thy friends or thine own were, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Behind and upholding whatever it is that you may think is this truth, listen carefully, God has made the world and he has made us for himself. And the way that we come to know him is on his terms, not our terms, but on his terms. So today I have invited you to turn to Matthew 5, and we're going to look again at verses 17 through 20. Today, like I said, we're mainly going to focus on verses 19 through 20, and in these verses what we're going to see is again the purpose statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount all about? As well as we will look at today from these verses what the Lord requires of us. And so let's read the text together. And as we read this text together, let me say this. Remember this, that the text that I've called your attention to today, the text that is before us, is one of the most profound statements on Scripture ever uttered in the world. Listen to it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We know the task before us today that you've called us to by your word is a task that is insurmountable to us, but made possible by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, teach us from your word. Conform us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two things from this passage that the Lord requires of us. Number one, this morning, and I encourage you to take notes. Number one, the Lord requires absolute righteousness. Absolute righteousness. Go back and read the truth of verse 20. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will 
never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that truth is a truth that Jesus has given us, and that truth is meant to take our breath away. Because in that day, when Jesus was talking in that time, there was one group who thought that they had the market on righteousness. There was one group that everybody thought, if anybody was going to make it into heaven, it'd be these people. But Jesus comes to them and says something a little different. There was one group that everyone thought had everything right. It was the Pharisees. By the way, the word Pharisee literally means separate. And the Pharisees, they prided themselves on the way that they observed the law. Now think about it. Here the Pharisees are. They're reading the Old Testament. They're doing their best to provide commentary on the Old Testament. They're trying to figure out what it means to love the Lord God with all your heart. They're figuring out what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. And so what they do is they add their own commentary on the law. And what that ended up doing were these thousands of regulations of what it meant to keep the law. And they may have been filled full of good intentions, but as Jesus tells us here, their form of righteousness is inadequate for the kingdom of heaven. And you know why it's inadequate? Here's the reason. Jesus tells us the reason. The problem with the Pharisees' form of righteousness is that it was self-righteousness. And the problem with self-righteousness is that when you're self-righteous, self becomes the object of your worship. If you're self-righteous, then you say, man, I am so great. When God intends you to say, man, God is so good and great. No wonder the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus. No wonder they didn't like Him. They had dedicated their entire lives. Here they are doing their diligence to perform what God requires of them. And they've devoted their entire lives to rule-keeping. And then a fellow who has no formal education... Someone who they saw as someone inferior tells them that you're doing it all wrong. Have you ever experienced something like that? I'll never forget one time I took a friend of mine, and I don't pride myself in my game of golf. I like to play. I, hey, when I go play golf, I get my money's worth. But I took this guy. I'd, I'd uh, increased a little bit in my game of golf, and I took this friend of mine who had never played a game of golf. And, man, I'm telling him how to swing the club and all this. And guess what happened at the end of the day? He beat me. Don't you love that? I didn't want to play golf with him anymore because, hey, if he's already beat me and he's just started, there's no way that I can even compete with him. Well, this is in the same way these Pharisees are thinking that they're doing everything right. Then this guy who they see as a nothing and a nobody comes up to them and indeed tells them that they're doing it all wrong. Remember the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has come into a world that is very religious. Don't think that everything is just, you know, people wandering around and, They're very religious people. He came to his own people. And think about what we know about his own people, the Jews. What do we know? He came to his own people. They'd been given the law. They'd been given the prophecies about the Son. They even had the temple to perform sacrifices. And so the world that Jesus came into was a very religious world. But listen carefully, it was not a righteous world. You may be today a very religious person. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are a righteous person. There was a former Pharisee describing the world that Jesus came into, and he was quoting the Old Testament to the Romans, and here's what Paul said. He said, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All 
have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so when Jesus comes, He comes, as John chapter 4 has already told us, He's coming as a light into a darkened world. Jesus came and He came to get at the root of our problem. He didn't come to just make us pretty on the outside. He came to get at the root of our problem. And the root, listen carefully, the root of our problem is not a doing problem. It is a desiring problem. Listen carefully. It's not enough to do right. You and I have to want to do right. Do you see the difference? One is an external problem. The other is an internal condition. The Bible says, listen carefully in Psalm 1, what's it say? Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. It doesn't say blessed is the man who keeps the law of the Lord. It said blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Your problem, my problem, isn't and wasn't a doing problem. It was a being problem. It was a problem of our desire. And let me say this. God sees your heart. He sees the heart of every man. Regardless of how good the outside looks, He sees every skeleton. He sees every crevice. He sees every ugly spot. He sees every cobweb in your heart. And sometimes I think that we are so silly when it comes to, to God. We do our best to hide our true selves from God when really God knows more about us than we even know about ourselves. And it's something so simple. In our prayer time, we want to hide ourselves from God when God really knows. Something so simple as we can be tempted to approach God with our own righteousness and something so simple as tithing. Tithing. Taking a portion of your money that already belongs, well, a portion of God's money that He's given to you and giving it back to Him. Such a simple principle, but such a true principle. Such a delicate principle, but one that is so exacting. And let me just get at it like this. You ask your heart this question, and God knows the answer. When you put your money in the offering plate, why are you doing it? Are you tithing so that God will bless you? Or are you tithing to be a blessing to God? You see the difference? The difference is the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. The difference is between desiring and doing. Or another one, when you wake up in the morning, do you desire to spend time with God in an act of true devotion to Him? Or are you in it for yourself? Are you one of these kind of people that you believe, and I've heard some of you say this, that man, my day just won't go right, and I believe that your day won't go right unless you spend time with Jesus, but you see how it can become something that it's a religious thing to do? Man, well, I'm having a bad day, but I didn't read the Psalms today. That's the reason. It becomes this doing as opposed to being. Don't get me wrong, and like I said, I believe that there are tangible blessings that come from obedience, but... Ask yourself this question, and only God knows. Search your heart. Have Him search your heart. Are you the center of your desiring? You see, God sees the heart of every man. He sees the heart of every woman, boy, girl. He sees the heart of everyone here. And God demands from us absolute righteousness. If something is righteous, then it's good. If someone has righteousness, then they are faultless. And God has come to us and told us that what He demands from us is absolute righteousness. So if God demands this absolute righteousness, then how in the world does righteousness come? It can't come by keeping a bunch of rules. 
Remember, we just read in Isaiah, God's problem is that they're a bunch of rule keepers, and that's all. They honor me with their mouth, but the heart, far from me. How does absolute righteousness come? Listen, if it's not something we can produce, no matter how hard we try, how then can we achieve righteousness? In a word, how can we achieve it? Righteousness is not something that can be achieved. If we could achieve our own righteousness, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to come. If you and I could achieve our own righteousness, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to come. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus has come not just to show us the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is not merely an example to follow. Jesus is the Lord to love. Jesus is not somebody that we just look at from a distance. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the object and the enabler of our affections. It's always about Jesus. If you're going to achieve righteousness, if you're going to be righteous, you're going to rest on what Christ has achieved. It's all about Jesus. Think about it. The way to righteousness has been given to us. We know the way to righteousness. You say, where has righteousness been given to us? Well, it was in the same place that the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were looking, but they just missed it. The way of righteousness has been given to us. And where has it been given? It's been given in the Bible, the law and the prophets. What did Jesus say about the law and the prophets? Don't miss this. What's he say? He said that he didn't come to abolish, but he came to fulfill. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. The reason that he doesn't abolish the law and the prophets is because the law and the prophets all testify and bear witness and look forward to and is about him. It all points to him. So Christ is the way that righteousness is fulfilled. Now, you'll be tempted if you're not careful. You'll be tempted to dice the Old Testament up like some do. And you'll want to concentrate on the Old Testament. And say that, well, how does the Old Testament point to Christ? Well, the Ten Commandments, that's all that matters. The Ten Commandments. Or just the prophecies about Jesus. That's what really matters today. Forget Leviticus. We don't have to preach from that. We don't have to believe that message. We don't have to know anything about that. Numbers, who knows what Numbers is really about. We want Exodus chapter 20. That's the Ten Commandments. That's where we'll teach Christ from the Old Testament. Or we'll just like the Psalms and the Proverbs. Because, man, we can really understand that easily. But listen carefully. The law, the prophets, and the writings. That's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a theological work that reveals God and reveals the way of righteousness. And the way to fulfill all that God desires and commands is summed up in one person. And it's real simple this morning. Jesus. Jesus. You say, well, Pastor, that's really too simple for me. And I hope that it is not too simple for you, but I hope it's simple for you. I hope that we understand it, that it's always been and always will be about Jesus. Your life, if you're going to make it in life, must be about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Think about it. How did Jesus begin his ministry? Do you remember? Do you remember how Jesus began his ministry? What did Jesus do? The first thing that he does, he gets baptized. Who's he baptized under? He gets baptized under one who is looking forward to the coming Son. He gets baptized under the baptizing prophet, John the Baptist. 
And when Jesus came to John, you remember what happened? Jesus comes to John, and John knows who he is. And he says, no, 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 I need to be baptized by you. But he's hesitant to baptize Jesus. Then he finally baptized Jesus. And remember what Jesus said to him? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. What did Jesus say to John? He said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us, don't miss this, to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what did Jesus say? He didn't say it is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. He's talking to John. He says it is fitting for us. Why the us? Because there is no Christ apart from the proclamation of His coming. This is what John's ministry is all about. This is why Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Because there is no Christ apart from the prophecies concerning His coming. And where do we find that? Well, we find it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, all the rest. It's all about Jesus. And then what happens after Jesus is baptized? Do you remember? Then all of a sudden the heavens were opened to Him and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And then behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus is going to say later that the only thing that He could do was whatever pleased the Father. Now, the only way that God is going to be pleased with us is for us to be pleased with the one that He's pleased with. The only way for God to be pleased with us is for us to be in the one with whom He is and always has been pleased with. Christ has come to fulfill righteousness for us. He is righteous. We are not. He has come To give us righteousness. And the way that He gives us righteousness is the heart of our faith. How's He done it? How did He give us righteousness? The Bible says, He who knew no sin was made sin so that we could become what? The righteousness of God. As one hymn writer put it, here's what he said, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. You see, I hope that you want to go to heaven this morning. I hope that you want to see Jesus. I hope that you want your forever to be at His right side. And the only way for you to get there is with absolute righteousness. It's a righteousness that can't be achieved. It's a righteousness that is given as a free gift of grace to all of those who trust in the One who came fulfilling all righteousness. So what does God require of us? What does He require? Absolute righteousness. A righteousness, again, I can't overemphasize this enough, a righteousness that is a gracious gift to us. But listen carefully to me. That gracious gift does not absolve us from our responsibility. That gracious gift does not absolve us from all responsibility. The second thing that the text teaches that our God requires of us in verse 19, not only absolute righteousness, but our God requires of us, number two, utmost effectiveness. Utmost effectiveness. You see, God gives us righteousness. He gives it to us. And don't ever forget that it's like it's some free gift. Don't ever forget that the the centerpiece of our righteousness is an old rugged cross. 
The centerpiece of our righteousness is a grave that was once occupied that's now empty, where the sinless Savior became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God, so that He could die in His death unrighteous, so that He could raise us up righteous just as He did. Don't ever forget that the gift of salvation is free, but it costs Jesus everything. God has given you this righteousness for a purpose. And that purpose is to make you the salt of the earth. He gives you this righteousness to make you the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Look at what He said. You, verse 13, are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. This righteousness that He has given us is a life that is meant to be lived out in the world to others. So that they may see our good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. You see, here's the truth. God gives you righteousness all at once. You know what we call that? Justification. He gives you righteousness all at once. Justification. But the rest of our lives are now to be lived in conformity to that righteousness. And you know what that's called? Sanctification. So our whole life, He gives us this as a gift one time for all. We are declared righteous with God. Now, the rest of our lives, what do we do? We go to match who it is that we are. That's called sanctification. We are being made holy because God has already made us holy. Now we're living out what He's already made us in heaven down here on earth until the day when He unites heaven with earth. So we're waiting that day. The rest of our lives are us not being conformed to the image of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I hope this morning that you can see how revolutionary salvation is. This salvation that God has given us. The picture in the text is He has taken what was darkness and made it light. You can't get any more of a contrast than light and darkness. And that's the intention. God wants us to see how revolutionary this salvation is. Christ has given us a new life and He has given us a new nature. And we can't just speak Christian. We can't just act Christian. We have to be Christian. As he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You know, the problem of the Pharisees is they were good at performing external duties. But God saw their heart. And in their heart, they were rotten. You see, they were coming at it the wrong way, the way that many do today. They thought that what is on the outside would eventually make its way on the inside. That's what they thought. What's on the outside will eventually make its way on the inside. This is what we say as well. You know, this whole pop psychology, just think happy thoughts. Just believe it and achieve it. What's on the outside will eventually make its way on the inside. When The way that Jesus says is what's on the inside will always show itself on the outside. And God has come to make you holy. God has come to set you apart. That's what holy means. Set apart. He has come to make you holy. He has come to set you apart so that you, He can display before the world a trophy of His grace so that He can make you His treasured possession. You see, God has come to take us from darkness to His light. We are then called and commanded by our God to walk in the light. You say, well, how in the world do we know how to walk? How do we know what is right? How do we know if we're even walking in the right light? And it's a simple answer again. How do you know if you're doing right? The Bible tells us so. You say, which part of the Bible? Every bit of it. 
Look at verse 19. Look at what the text says. Look at what 19 says. He says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of even the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same, look at the, don't miss this, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19 tells us that we cannot relax or loose any of the Scriptures. Why on earth would Jesus say this? The reason that we cannot loose any of the Scripture is because all of the Bible reveals Christ. All of the Bible reveals Christ. I'm going to put something on the screen. It will be made available to you online a little later. But listen to how all the Bible reveals Christ. In Genesis, He is the end from the beginning. In Exodus, He saves His people from the serpent king. In Leviticus, He is the propitiation for our sins. In Numbers, He is the blessing of His people. In Deuteronomy, He is the God who loves His people and commands them to love Him. In Joshua, He is the conqueror of His enemies. In Judges, He is faithful even when His people are faithless. In Samuel, He is the King of His people. In Kings, He is present in the midst of His people. In Isaiah, He is the future hope in the midst of present sin. In Jeremiah, He is the bringer of a new covenant. In Ezekiel, He is the resurrection and the life. In the book of the Twelve, He is the God of mercy and salvation. In the Psalms, He is the indescribable God. In Proverbs, He is the wisdom of God. In Job, He is the healing for our hurt. In the Song of Songs, He is the lover of our souls. In Ruth, He is our kinsman redeemer. In Lamentations, He is the hope in the midst of our hopelessness. In Ecclesiastes, He is the meaning of life. In Esther, He is the secret worker of salvation. In Daniel, He is the one coming to rule the nations. In Ezra and Nehemiah, He is the object of His people's worship. And in Chronicles, He is the one in whom we believe in and are saved. He has not come to abolish the law. He has come to fulfill the Old Testament in every story. Every story whispers His name. So then you and I have a responsibility. That responsibility that we have is to believe the message of the Bible. What's the message of the Bible? All the way from Genesis to Revelation, there is a rhythm that is beat all through the very beginning, all the way to the end. What's the rhythm? How do we figure out what is being played and what songs there and how to discover it all. What Scripture all about? Scripture is about faith in the finished work of the Son. And faith in the Son is not just believing something about Christ. Faith in the Son is a life that is lived for Jesus. Everything that we do is worshipful adoration to Him. Look at what Jesus says. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, look at what He says there. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. Notice the order. Do before teach. Do before teach. You know why many aren't teaching? They don't do. Now, granted... Many need to stop teaching who aren't doing, but far too many aren't teaching others about the greatness of a life with Jesus because you are not living a life great for Jesus. You're not living a life of faith in the Son. The Bible says that those who are great in the kingdom are those who do and
those who are least in the kingdom are those who relax or loose the commandments of Jesus. And I look at those terms there and I don't see great and, and less. and I don't see those as exclusive and inclusive terms. Every one of these people are, are in the kingdom. But they're least in the kingdom. Now if you had a choice, if you had a choice, and you do have a choice, between being least and greatest. We're not talking about least and greatest at your high school football team or at your graduation. We're not talking about least or greatest in your workplace or in your family. Whatever. We're not talking about that. We're talking about least or greatest as it means to eternity. If you had a choice between least and greatest, which one would you choose? The heart of a worshiper of God is going to be so overwhelmed by His greatness and grace that they will do whatever it takes to bring God the utmost most glory. And let's be honest. There's some of you who aren't living a life of greatness. Maybe because you haven't discerned what Jesus is saying here. You're conflicted by the teaching you've received or maybe you've misinterpreted. You've thought that it's just about a bunch of rule keeping. You've thought that if you just come to church on Sunday and pay your tithe and volunteer every now and then that that's quite enough. Maybe you think that righteousness is something that you achieve instead of something that is given by grace. What does that mean? It means that some of you don't believe the Gospel. Some of you don't know the length that God has gone to save you and that you cannot save yourself. The reason that you're saved, the reason that you're righteous, the reason that you'll make it to heaven is because Jesus has given the greatest gift to you and the gift that He's given is Himself. You're still trusting in yourself. Jesus says you won't even make it as far as the Pharisees did. The way of salvation all the way back to Genesis is faith in the finished work of the Son. What does this mean? It means that you are not resting on what you can do. You are trusting in what He has done as the sole means of the satisfaction for your soul. If you are a Christian this morning, you are a Christian not because of anything you can, listen, not because of anything you can or can't do. You are a Christian because of all that Jesus has done. The life that you live now is a life of faith and every action you take is an act of faith in the finished work of the Son. There are others who you know the grace of God. But you're using the freedom that you have as a covering for your own evil. You are presuming on grace instead of being overwhelmed by grace. And let me just say this, guys. If you would look at your wife, you would be amazed that she loves you. Instead of just thinking that she should love you, it will change your relationship with your wife, husbands, wives the same way with their husbands. Don't just take it for granted that your wife loves you. I watched my wedding video the first time in, in nine. I've not watched the video since then, but I watched it last night. And here I am looking at this beautiful blonde-headed woman dressed in white coming down to meet this old shabby boy down here at the end of the altar. I'm thinking, wow, she loves me? Every day I try to live that way with her. I, I don't take it for granted that she loves me. Yeah, i got a ring on her finger. She's got one on mine. But I'm just amazed every day that she loves me. 
And I tell you, friends, if you would live that way with Jesus, if you would not presume on His grace, not take His grace for granted, but be overwhelmed by His amazing grace, then it will change your relationship with God. I'm not talking about those who struggle with sin. Because we all struggle with sin. I'm talking about those who have given over to their sin. And you sin, but when you sin, you know that God will forgive you, so you just do it anyway. So you're using the grace of God, presuming on the grace of God, using the grace of God as a covering for evil. There's no grief over your sin. Instead, you just dismiss it as just the way you are. Jesus says you are relaxing the law. Remember, the fulfillment of the law is faith in the Son. And by faith in the Son, you are enabled to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And you are enabled to love your neighbor as yourself. And by faith in the Son, you live a life that is pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So just remember this. Remember this. When temptation comes your way, there's an opportunity for you to exercise faith. It's an opportunity for you to believe what God said. It's an opportunity for you to believe that God is greater than whatever it is over here you're desiring. It's an opportunity for you to live a life pleasing to God and enact faith. And I want to say this. Sin will keep you ineffective for God. Why are you not making disciples? Why are you not living with this greatness that God has called us to? Why are you not witnessing? Why are you not teaching? Here's the reason. Here's the reason. There is something in your life that you love more than Jesus. And it may be yourself. You are not living a life of faith in the Son. You are not living a life trusting Him. Turning to Him, loving Him with all of your heart. You know, it's interesting. Think about David just for a minute. David, man after God's own heart. There's a contrast if you read the Bible closely between David and his sons. David and everybody who followed after him. Now, David did a terrible thing. When it came time for David to repent, he did it immediately. David had a problem, but you know what his problem was not? His problem was never idolatry. He never took for granted the grace of God. Instead, he lived a life being amazed that there was a God in heaven who would be merciful towards him. And I pray that that's true in your life. Sin will keep you ineffective for God. Jesus says that you are relaxing the law. Now, as we wrap things up today, there's a passage in Peter that I want us to look at in that is very encouraging as it relates to being effective for God. Listen to Peter. Peter says this. Listen, he's writing after Jesus has said the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Holy Spirit applying the message of the Sermon on the Mount to the church when we read the epistles from the apostles. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Don't miss this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Stop right there. Who accomplished salvation for us? Was it our power? What's the first word? His. So automatically, you know what that does? It makes our mind automatically lift above ourselves to see someone greater. His divine power has granted to us all 
things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. You didn't even achieve the knowledge of your own. It was a knowledge that called us into His own glory and excellence. Look at verse 4. By which He has granted to us, we're not even in the picture yet, granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become, we're still not in it, become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. So here's what God has done for us. Now look at verse 5. For this very reason. Because of what God has done for you. Because it's all about Jesus. Because it's all about Him fulfilling the law. Because it's all about Him. For this very reason. Make every effort. Now, here's where we start straining. Here's where we start struggling. Here's where we start fighting the good fight that Paul says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. And then look at verse 8. For of these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, listen to this, listen, listen, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For in this way, there will be provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ. What does God require of us? Absolute righteousness. Utmost effectiveness. And all of this is achieved in one way. One way. Faith in the finished work of the Son. Who is Himself in His person. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Who Himself is the end of our sin and the satisfaction of our souls. Would you pray with me this morning? As every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I want you to just take a moment right now where you are to look at your life, to ask God to look at your life. Are you living a life faith in the Son? Are you desiring greatness for His name? Are you trusting in all that He has done? Or, 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 have you spent your entire life until this moment amassing for yourself your own self-righteousness? Thank you, Lord God, for Your Word. 
Thank you for calling us and telling us what you require of us. Thank you, Lord God, for not just holding it above us as if it was something that always striving to achieve but never really achieving. Lord, you have not just shown us the way. Lord, you are the way. And I pray right now for every person within the sound of my voice. I pray that they can truly say to you, I am trusting Jesus. I am trusting Jesus. Maybe today they say that for the first time. Maybe today they need to say it because they hadn't said it in a while. Maybe today we have a greater understanding of what it means to say it. Father, whatever, however you've met us today, we thank you for meeting us with the truth of your word. We thank you for a moment like this where you can take us and call our affections back to you. Now, Father, help us in the power of your Spirit to diligently walk in obedience with you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at oxfordbaptistchurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.